good to be with you this morning. I bring you greetings from the saints and elders of Christ Church, Katie, your sister congregation just a little bit to the west. Um, I miss, as our brother mentioned, I miss our times of fellowship, those fifth Sunday uh, combined services that um, we have shared in the past. And um, you all have uh, not been idle since the last time I was here. You've made significant improvements, and and um, I was uh, um, just impressed with um, the remodeling that you've done, and, and it really looks well. So uh, you have not been idle during this season of COVID, so I commend you for that. Um, turning your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 14, Mark 14. <clears throat> I've been preaching through uh, the Gospel of Mark um, at Christ Church on Sunday evenings when I have opportunity to preach, and because it is not every week, I've been in Mark since I came there in 2017, um, and we've made it all the way <clears throat> up to uh, Mark 14. This is the, the last sermon, actually, that I, that I preached a few weeks ago. Um, if you think about Mark, and, and I don't know if I, I can't remember if I've preached from Mark here before, but, but one thing I like to, to encourage people and, and help them think about this gospel, that there's really three questions that Mark is dealing with. And it's helpful as we, as, as one reads the gospel of Mark to think about these three questions. Because they're, they're kind of always swirling in the background of, of, of this gospel. That is, these three questions are, who is Jesus, what did he come to do, and what does it mean to follow him? And I hope that, that everyone here either has grappled with that or continues to grapple with that. Because every man, woman, boy, and girl, in the sound of my voice, in this great big city, in this great big state, and in everywhere in the world, ultimately has to deal with those questions. And so... As we look at Christ in the garden, really those questions should be in the back of our minds. If we were just to look a little bit to see the events that have led us up to this point here in Mark 14, we'll, we'll pick up in verse 32 here in, in a moment. But um, we have to think about who Jesus is, and Mark really lays that out in the first 10 chapters or so. Um, he talks about Christ's teaching, his miracles, and really the kind of the capstone of who Jesus is came in the words of Peter when he said there in chapter 8, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He says exactly and precisely and definitively who Jesus is. And Jesus speaks about what he came to do. And really that is, is clearly defined in, in Mark 10:45, where it says that Jesus came, that even for the son of, even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve and he came to give his life. And then we also see what it means to follow him. And, and really that is revealed in, in many small ways, but, but again with definition there in chapter 8, where Jesus said, if any man would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. And as we look at Christ in the garden, and, and this is a very sober passage, um, this is a very sober week um, as we approach um, Easter Sunday next week and think about the resurrection. But it's, it's important for us as followers of Christ to think about these things, to think about Christ's death and what it means 
to us. So before we uh, jump in to the rest of this sermon, let me let me pray and ask God's blessing upon the reading of his word. And then um, let us um, read our text. Let, let us pray. Lord God, we look to you. We are needy. Lord, we are faltering. We are frail. Lord, we need your word so much, and, and we desire to sit under its authority. Lord, I pray that you would speak in and through your word, Lord, we ask. And, Lord, we pray that it would be quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And, Lord, we pray, O oh God, that you would bless it to us. And, Lord, I pray that, that we would not just be pleasantly stirred, but even changed at the very core of who we are by this encounter with you in and through the pages of your word. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts here be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Mark 14, beginning with verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from them. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. This, as we have mentioned, is what we commonly call Palm Sunday. Um, and um, we could look at the text from Mark 11 when Jesus did make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem to the sounds, the shouts of Hosanna from the crowds and the children and the palm branches waving. Um, but this morning we're moving forward to the text that we have just read. And in that time, we have seen Jesus in those uh, the, the first couple days of of Passion Week, of Holy Week, uh, it can be called, where he is he is having interactions and he with the Jewish leaders, and we see as he fields these questions, many of them placed put against him. You can look at those in chapter 12, and many of those questions are are posed to him to try to trip him up. And as he answers those questions, he really goes to the heart of the questioners. And you see this growing animosity between the Jewish leaders and our Lord Jesus. Now, earlier in this rather long chapter, chapter 14, just to give you a little background, we see two really uh, very poignant scenes. One is where the woman comes and breaks this alabaster flask of ointment and anoints Jesus, um, a very moving and, and loving expression that, that she um, uh, 
shows towards our Lord Jesus. And then we see in just the previous verses how Jesus has shared the Passover meal, the final meal with his disciples. So here we are really in the middle of Passion Week. And the the disciples have been to the Mount of Olives, and now they retreat to this garden on the the um, the slopes of the Kidron Valley, the Garden of Gethsemane. And here we see Christ in agony, not yet the agony, the physical agony of the nails that pierced his hands and feet, but the agony of what was before him. And we see here in this text that Christ's humanity is displayed to us in very graphic terms. And I want us to see more about Jesus, and we want to look at this text under four headings this morning. Christ's true suffering, his true humanity, his true and complete obedience, and his true love for you and me. His true humanity, obedience, I'm sorry, suffering, humanity, obedience, and true love for us. Here, as we've said in verse 32, Jesus and the disciples have arrived in the garden. And he, as sometimes was his custom, he he leaves a, a subset of these disciples and travels on with his three closest disciples. And Jesus says to Peter, James and John that his soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And he asks them to remain there and watch now. Um, we could we could discuss what that watching means. It, it, it most likely means a spiritual watching, a pray and and ask. And he does ask them to pray. He seems to be enlisting the prayer support of his closest allies in this his darkest hour. But then he goes on alone and travels to a place of prayer. And there his suffering begins in earnest. He falls to the ground. He is distressed and troubled. His soul is sorrowful even to death. And he is facing death in a very real sense. But this suffering is more than even the prospect of physical death that any other human could ever experience. Because what Jesus was facing was a substitutionary death. In his death, he bore the sins of all his people. Now, when we think of Christ's death... It's, it's so easy to think, oh, well, what a dreadful thing to happen to such a nice man. But this is so much more than just that. Christ's death is not just an example of human kindness. It was something that Jesus did voluntarily. He did it of his own will because out of love for us. And he did it as our substitute. In Christ's death. He faced the full fury of the wrath of God upon sinners. He did it in our stead, in our place. So here is true suffering. Our text makes it clear what he experienced. And it tells us in in words that are that are full of meaning that that he was he was distressed. It could be translated as horror struck. The great theologian B.B. Warfield has an essay titled The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And in there he wrote about Christ's suffering here. He says the primary idea of troubled is a loathing aversion, perhaps not unmixed with despondency. While Jesus's self-description as overwhelmed with sorrow expresses a sorrow, but but also a mental pain, he writes, a distress which hems him in on every side from which there is no escape. 
Christ is here in the garden suffering the horrible prospect of bearing the sins of all of his people. Jesus has, of course, already told his disciples. He he told them numerous times that he was going to die. But here the hour of death is upon him and the weight of sin is upon him. And we think, how could one man bear such an awful load? We think of Moses in the book of Exodus when when he when God revealed himself to him there. Moses, in a sense, saw at least a portion of God's glory as God revealed himself on Sinai. That was the God of covenant coming to reveal himself to his people. But here Jesus is facing the unmitigated wrath of God upon sin. And if Moses trembled in fear at the God coming in covenant and mercy to his people, how much more would Jesus tremble in horror and fear at the prospect of facing the wrath of God against sin? It was of such emotional and physical grief to Christ that Luke tells us that his sweat became as it were, drops of blood in that moment. We know that very likely that the, the physical agony and the, and the mental and emotional prospect of this was so great and probably made worse by the temptations of Satan. Luke tells us, if we were to look in that gospel, of that how Jesus, when he was tempted in the garden, resisted that temptation, of course. And then we, it says that, that Satan departed from him for a season. And it seems now that Satan has come back in his fury in this opportune time. And perhaps even seeking to tempt Christ to doubt his father's love. And that, of course, is Satan's quintessential lie that God does not love us, that God does not give us the good things that he has promised to us. But here Christ is facing judgment against sin. We see his true suffering in this moment. Secondly, we see his true humanity. And perhaps in this text more than Really, any other, certainly in the Gospel of Mark and maybe in all of Scripture, we see Christ's humanity portrayed for us very clearly. Back in Mark 9, if we were to turn our, page, our Bibles just a few pages back, we see on the Mount of Transfiguration where we saw the veil pulled back a little bit to see Christ's divinity. Jesus was there, and Scripture explains how his, his raiment was white and brilliant beyond description. And he conversed there with Elijah and Moses. And um, they, the disciples and Jesus heard a voice from heaven pronouncing Christ as God's Son. And, and there we see a little window into his divinity. Here we see a window into his true humanity in, in a way that, that other places don't show us. And there's certainly mysteries um, to Christ's humanity and, and who Christ was that, that we can't fully explore. We know that he is God, that he took on flesh, that he became man. This is the incarnation. And it is, as our catechism tells us in, in one of my favorite questions and answers, number 21, who is the redeemer of God's elect? The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God became man 
and so was and continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. So while we can't fully explain that, we have to we have to peer into it as best we can. And here in, in this text in Mark 14, we have what one commentator has wisely said, the raw material for later Christological debate. And we see that debate kind of developing over the first few centuries and really became crystallized at the Council of Chalcedon in the 5th century. There the church fathers established that Christ is truly God and truly man, but that he is man with two natures, as our catechism tells us, the human and the divine. And and in this council, in the creed that they developed there, they said that these natures are not confused or mixed or divided or separated. And really they, they cut a fine line to help us understand who Jesus Christ is. It is, as my, um, uh, one of my systematic theology professors in seminary, Derek Thomas said, Dr. Derek Thomas said, there is only one he. There is only one he. In other words, these, these two natures are part of one person. There is only one he. But this sermon is not a theological lecture. The others could give that much better than I. But we have to look at our text to understand more about who Jesus is. And we see his humanity revealed in three ways here. His, in his mind, in his emotion, and in his will. First of all, his mind. What did Jesus know about the suffering that he was to face? Well, Scripture doesn't necessarily tell us. We know that, that Christ came as a babe, of course, that his understanding developed along with his physical growth. It says that he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So we see that Christ grew in his understanding. We know in just from, from what boys of that era learned, they learned the Old Testament, they learned the prophets, they learned what, what God had said through the prophets about Jesus Christ. So there had to be this developing awareness of who, uh, even within Christ's own mind, of who he was and, and what it was that he was facing, what it is that he came to do, like we mentioned in the earlier questions. So he no doubt meditated upon the prophecies about himself. What a thought. And, and no doubt those, those prophecies flooded his mind as he faced this Moment, this hour in the Garden of Gethsemane, these prophecies were no doubt upon his mind. Perhaps even Isaiah 53 came to his mind, which says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. This was coming together in Christ's mind. He had a human mind, and yet he had an understanding of the scriptures that, that pointed and helped him understand what it was that he came to do. We see his humanity and his emotions as well. We've already spoken about those. He was sorrowful to death. He was greatly distressed and troubled. He fell to the ground as he prayed to the Father. We see his humanity and the support that he needed in this hour. He asked his disciples to watch and to pray with him, to support him. In Mark chapter 3, we are told that the reason, one of the reasons Jesus 
chose his disciples and, and drew these 12 men along with him was he, he wanted their companionship. To be with them was one of the reasons. And so now in his time of needs, he needs their companionship. Jesus had true human emotions. We see that in other places as well as Jesus wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. At, at other times, he showed human emotion Perhaps more than any of the other, more than the other two, we see a human will within Jesus as he grappled with the prospect of what he was facing. He had a human will. And, and here in the garden, in Gethsemane, his human will seems to be writhing as he seeks to be submissive to the will of his father and yet appalled at the task that is before him. He prayed, Abba, Father. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. That term Abba, as, as many have, have spoken, is a, is, a, is a term of familiarity and respect. It was a family term. And it, he was crying out to his father. And he's genuinely wrestling with what he had to do, asking that this cup be removed from him. His human will asks, is this really necessary? Is this really the way it has to be? Is there no other way? But then we see in our text that he submits to his father's will, saying, yet not what I will, but what you will. R.T. France, a commentator on, on this passage, said, the Jesus who accepts his father's will does not do so with a docetic indifference. Now, docetism, it was a was a heresy that claimed that Christ's body was not really human. In other words, his suffering was not genuine because he didn't have a human body, this heresy would teach. And so he's, he's pointing to the fact in this comment that, that it's, it's not as though that were the case. He says that Jesus, the Jesus who accepts his Father's will does not do so with that thought with that indifference, but with a mental as well as a physical agony that will reach its horrifying climax in the cry from the cross where Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here we see the humanity of Christ in, in, in very real and graphic terms. We see his human mind, his human emotions, and his human will. We've seen Christ suffering We've seen his humanity. Let us consider his obedience. Jesus prayed. He asked to be relieved of what was before him. His human will wrestled with the prospect of what was before him. Yet he was submissive and obedient to his father's will. He did it voluntarily, yet in his humanity he wrestled with it. All of those things were present as he prayed. Jesus had already taught his disciples to pray as we prayed this morning, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And here Jesus is practicing what he preached. He's praying, your will be done, my father. There are certain echoes of this passage in, in Psalm 42 and 43. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And, and perhaps some of those psalms were coming to Christ's mind as he wrestled with what was before him. In that prayer, the psalmist consoles himself to hope in God. And Jesus did hope in God, but there was nothing pleasant in that which God had called him to do. He was obedient 
when his disciples failed in their obedience. He was obedient to the death, even the death of the cross. He was obedient in bearing the sins for you and for me. And in verses 41 and 42, it seems the wrestling is complete. And when it is, Jesus shows great resolve. He speaks to his disciples one more time. He reproves them for their sleepiness and prayerlessness. He says, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough, he says. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. He rises with resolve to do the work that he came to do. Jesus says, now the hour has come. We know that the die is cast. The events will unfold over the coming hours and days. The betrayer is at hand. There is no going back. The time of action has come. And Jesus here shows true obedience and great resolve as he marches to the cross. We've seen his suffering, his humanity, his obedience, and it all points to true love. The world has such a distorted picture of love. For them, love is all about what you can get and how you can feel. But true biblical love is a love that gives Jesus told his disciples in John 15, greater love has no one than this, than someone that someone lay down his life for his friends. True biblical love gives its sacrifices. And Jesus embodies this true love in this moment and in the in the coming hours and days as we as we read about his suffering and death. We have to look at him, wonder why. Why would a man do such a thing? And it's certainly out of love. He did it out of mercy and for his own glory. God is glorified in the redemption of sinners. So we should really humbly rejoice when we look at this text and as we think, especially this week, about what Jesus accomplished upon the cross. We may also ask, why did it have to be so? Why did the God-man have to die? Why did one who had done no sin have to suffer for the sins of others? The truth is, is that it could be no other way. Sin is against an infinitely holy God and can only be fully paid for by a perfectly holy one. And it was agreed upon in eternity past that Christ would come and that Christ would suffer and that Christ would pay the penalty for our sins. As we go through the events of Passion Week, we we get the sense that that everything is happening according to a prescribed plan. And that's because it is. Because God in eternity past planned for a way of salvation for you and for me. We see that revealed in Acts 4 when the disciples of the then risen Lord prayed for boldness and they recognized that it was the hand of God that had ordained all that took place in, in our Lord's suffering and death. They, they speak of those Jewish leaders who had such hatred and animosity towards Christ. And they say about them, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to to take place. This was all part of God's plan of salvation. 
And herein is true love for sinners. Only the perfect son could pay the penalty of our sins against an infinitely holy God. He alone could atone for our guilt. Only Christ. In Genesis 3, we see how our father Adam was in a garden when Satan tempted him. The first Adam fell. He sinned. He failed to fully obey God's law. In the hour of weakness and temptation, he caved. He gave in. And because Adam was our father, we sinned and fell in and with him. And therefore sin came upon all of us, all mankind. But here in this garden, in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus did not fail in his obedience. He didn't cave. In his moment of wrestling with what was before him, he was faithful. And that's why Paul calls Jesus the last Adam, because he came came through. He followed through. He accomplished what he was called to do. And now his perfect obedience and perfect righteousness is reckoned to us when we come to Christ in faith. Romans 5.19 says, For as by the... By one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Romans five nineteen. Jesus, our second Adam, obeyed. He went forward with resolve. He set his face to complete the work that he came to do. He has paid the penalty of our sins. Now we come to the end of a sermon like this and we think, so what? What, what do we do with this? And, and maybe you're thinking, wow, that's just kind of a downer. You know, we, we want to be encouraged when we leave the worship service on a Sunday morning. And, and instead, we have to, to think about Christ's suffering in this dark, dark hour. But we have to be reminded that without understanding the bad news, there can be no good news. There can be no resurrection without the cross. The cross has no meaning if we fail to understand why Christ had to die. We have to first learn about sin and the consequences of sin to see how necessary the suffering and death of our Lord Jesus was. If we fail to see sin as sin, we fail to see why we need Jesus. And Christ should become more beautiful to us as we come to a deeper understanding of what sin is, and especially the sin that is in us. Perhaps you're familiar with an ancient work by Anselm, Anselm of Canterbury called Der Curdeus Homo, or Why the God-Man. And in that book, written in, I think, the 11th century, it's, it's written as a, con, as a conversation between Anselm and this, this other character, ironically called Bozo. And the, they, they lay out the question of why did God have to become man? Why did he have to become man? And then that God man, why did he have to die? And, and in that conversation, Bozo remarks about what an extravagant, ridiculous thing. And Anselm tells him, he says, you have not yet considered the weightiness of your sin. If you think that this is something frivolous or irrational, then you have not considered the weightiness of your sin. And I think we need to meditate upon that and we need to reflect upon that and think that, that the reason Jesus suffered in the way he did 
was because of me. Because of us. Because of our sin. And I think it's important, especially at this time of year, to slow down and to pause and reflect upon the great suffering of our Lord and consider, uh, I, I love the way our hymns describe this. And, and some of the hymns are, are slow and, and heavy, but I think it's important that we sing them and that we think about these things. One that, that I've grown to love over the last few years is called Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted, and it goes like this. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted, see him dying on the tree. Tis the Christ by man rejected. Yes, my soul, tis he, tis he. Tis the long-expected prophet, David's son, yet David's Lord. By his son, God now has spoken. Tis the true and faithful word. Tell me, ye who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like his? Friends, through fear his cause disowning. Foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. Here we have a firm foundation. Here the refuge of the lost. Jesus, the rock of Christ, the rock of our salvation. His the name of which we boast. Lamb of God for sinners wounded. Sacrifice to cancel guilt. None shall ever be confounded. Who on him their hope have built. So even as we look at our sin, we must look much more to Christ because what Jesus did paid the penalty of our sins. That's the glorious good news in the darkness of Gethsemane is that Jesus continued on. He completed the work that he came to do, which is to pay the penalty of our sin. And now we can live free, free in Christ, free to serve him. I think often of the words of, of Robert Murray McShane who said, yes, we should look at our own sin. But for every one look at our sin, we should look ten times to the Lord Jesus. We should look to him who paid the penalty for our sins. If you do not know him as your Savior this morning, I invite you to turn to Christ. To come to him in repentance and faith. To give your heart to him and serve him and him alone. Let us pray.